Well, good morning. Good morning. Let's pray. Yes, Father, we are willing to be weak this morning, Lord. We're telling you that we want to see you lifted high. We want to, God, to see you humble us so that you can receive glory and praise and work in and through us, Lord. You think, I think of the verse in your word where it says that, that you are opposed to the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Father, we want to see you honored and glorified in our lives, and we pray now that even from what we hear in your word this morning, we'll speak to our hearts and that we will, um, it'll just be evident, Lord, that you're, you have our heart and that we are being faithful and loyal to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you were to Hosea, which is a book in the Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets. One of the, the longest chapters for the minor prophets, Hosea, 14 chapters in all. We're going to be actually looking at a couple of verses throughout the verses or the chapters that are in this book. So I encourage you maybe if you get time during the week that it'd be good just to read it all in one setting. You can do that. It won't be difficult. I promise. You can get through it. And you can be able to say I went through one book in the Old Testament. Praise God. End of August, we'll be uh, going to my niece's wedding. My sister's oldest daughter is going to be married. And I'm sure if you're like me, everybody loves a wedding. Weddings are joyful occasions. And the summertime, of course, is when a lot of them occur. Next March, uh, Cindy and I will be celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary, God willing. And I can remember back in our church in March of 1981 when I was standing up at our church platform and watching her walk down the aisle. And I can remember being incredibly nervous, but totally consumed and in love with watching my bride as she was coming down the aisle. I remember when we exchanged our vows that one phrase stood out that also applies to this morning's message. And it was a phrase that I said to her that I was promising to keep myself only for her as we both, or as long as we both shall live. Marriage illustrates God's relationship with his people. And there perhaps isn't a greater tragedy when that marriage relationship is broken and we see it severed because we understand it to be a sacred vow. It's interesting in the book of Hosea that we have a very real, a tragic, and a true love story that's all encompassed in this book. The primary characters are Hosea and his bride, and her name was Gomer. And the interesting thing about this book is is if you read through it, and as we'll see, Hosea is a picture of God, what he's like as a husband, his faithfulness, his utter and total faithfulness and devotion and commitment to Gomer. And that's what God is like and what he's trying to say, Hosea the prophet, to the Israelites. And we can take it by application as the church. Sadly, though, Gomer illustrates what Israel was like. Constantly turning away, seeking away, looking for other loves, chasing after idols, 
being unfaithful. On God's part, he made a covenant. And the wonderful thing about our God today is that he was to the Israelites and he is to you and I today, the church, totally faithful to us. There's not one ounce or one inch of where you could say he is not faithful. He has completely kept his end of the bargain in this relationship because he's God. But as you'll see if you read through Hosea, Israel was adulterous and very unfaithful to God. Notice, if you will, in the first chapter of Hosea, it says, The word of the Lord, this is verse 1, which came to Hosea, the son of Beri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. That's the setup of what was going on. That's kind of the sum total of what was going on. And as you read through this book, you'll see that God is saying, he's pointing out to Israel and he's saying, you know what? This is how you've forsaken me. These are the things that you've done. You sought after other loves. You built for yourself idols. You've turned away from me. And then God in his word, and we'll be seeing this more specifically in the middle portion of the book, says this is specifically what you've done. And he outlines their sin. And he says, you know what? I've got to judge you. You know, I love you so much. I want to have to judge you in righteousness because I want you to turn back. I want you to turn back to me. And then in the end of the book, he promises where that'll be there, that restoration, if Israel would be willing to do that. And so that's kind of the outline of what happens in the book. When I think of the two modern day phrases that describe this morning's message, the first being the title of the message, it would be Homewrecker and Runaway Bride. When you think of a homewrecker, maybe you've seen that phrase. That's a word I hadn't, a phrase I hadn't actually heard of until maybe about a year or two ago. It's one that the media picked up. It's not a very popular word. I think one of the last things you want to ever hear someone say of you is that you're a homewrecker. I would define it this way. Anything or person that threatens the safety and security of where I belong. If you're allowing anything to come into your relationship with God, then those things are homewreckers and the security of what you enjoy as his child. Israel, and I think you, there probably were a couple of more, but I want to pinpoint four home-wrecking sins that contributed to Israel being a runaway bride, constantly wanting to leave the bridegroom. And as a result, and this is the thing that comes out so strongly as you read through this book, as well as throughout the Bible, and it's this very thing that sometimes we forget, and that is, is that God is a God of emotion. God feels you know, sometimes you might read through this book and say, well, they're just, they're just words on a page. And that's a mistake. Because God isn't sense of saying, this is from my very heart what I have conveyed to you through the prophets, specifically in this case, Hosea. And God is grieved when we sin. 
You think about it, any kind of a relationship that you're in today. When someone does something in that relationship that hurts you, you feel it. You'd be, it'd be in a peculiar, it'd be a very strange relationship if somebody could do something that was hurtful and then you'd feel no pain. In the relationships that mean the most to us, we feel the pain of when something happens that hurts or offends. And in that sense, God is saying to you, the Israelites, he's saying, you know what, I want you folks to understand. I'm your, you're, you're my chosen people. When you hurt me, when you go away from me, when you stray, I feel it. And it would help us to really understand that because then it would help us to see, you know what, God, I want to remove the stumbling blocks that are in my life that are affecting my relationship with you. The very things that might be breaking your heart today. And I want to have a relationship that's restored. Where you're pleased rather than grieved. Where, God, you're experiencing joy from my life rather than pain. And that my life is a, is a shining light to the nations, which is what the Israelites were to be before all of the enemies of God. And they so often were going back and going against God and going and following after those enemies. And it was confusing their witness. God today desires an intimate walk with us. This is what we say about Christianity. We always say, maybe you used the phrase before, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. It's so much about not a religion, it's so much about it's a relationship with the living God. And you think of a relationship that you have with another human being. You have a relationship with the almighty God, if you know him today, and if he's your Lord and Savior. And therefore, so many of the analogies that apply to a good relationship with another person, a spouse or a close friend, very much apply in your relationship with God. And I think you'll see that. And if I'd like you to flip over to Hosea chapter 7, one of the mistakes, one of the home-wrecking sins that contributed to Israel being a runaway bride, the first one is in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, and it's this. They forgot. They simply forgot. God says through Hosea the prophet, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim, which is another reference to Israel, is uncovered, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief enters in, bandits raid outside, and they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around them. They are before my face. They forgot something that maybe we sometimes forget, and it's this, that God sees and knows everything. Now, that is totally unlike you and I. You may think you know everything, but you don't. We don't see and know anything, frankly, compared to God. He does. Sometimes we have this idea, and people have it, and I, I see this certainly in my job that is, unfortunately, job security for me. And those that we deal with out on the street, as they have an idea that no one will ever know. No one's watching. So therefore, I can do what I can do. And once in a while, we get lucky, and we catch the crooks. Sometimes we get the idea that the very secret sins that we commit, that no one else knows, we can do, we can think, we can speak, because only we know it. 
And we think we're tempted to think, I can get away with it. And God is saying to the Israelites, and he's reminding us today, that he sees everything. He sees and says in verse 1, he says, you know what? I want to heal you, Israel. I want to heal you from your sin. But as long as you act that I don't see your sin, then we're not going to be able to do business. We're not going to be able to get this thing right. If you're in denial, Israel, if you think that I don't see this as a holy God who's all-knowing, ever-present, then it isn't going to happen. You're not going to be forgiven. You've got to treat me as I really am. And that is a God who sees everything. And he sees unrepentant sin that we're not willing to turn away from. He says, you've got to make that right. He said that to the Israelites and they weren't willing to do that. Yes, it says later on in the chapters that they came to him with tears. It looks sincere. Only to go back. Only to go back repeatedly into that sin. How would you treat? How would you act if somebody said, I'm sorry. Forgive me for what I've done. And you know what? They do it on Monday. They do the same thing again on Tuesday. They do the same thing again on Wednesday. Thursday. Friday. In our situation, probably most of us would say if it wasn't a relationship that we were committed to in a marriage, we'd probably say, you know what? I don't think I'm going to get hurt anymore in this thing. I can't trust you. It's too painful. That's how we might humanly react. Yet God, in his amazing love for us, says, I'm going to hang in there with you. I'm not going to leave in this relationship. But I'm not pleased when there's unrepentant sin that keeps on occurring over and over again. Have we forgotten? Do we think that God doesn't see and that he's blind to what's on our mind and hearts? The things that we wouldn't want anyone else to know. Do we think he turns a blind eye to maybe that critical or complaining spirit? Do you think his eyes are closed to prideful thoughts? One thing I relate to now as I get older and older, is, and maybe you can show by your hands, you're probably like me too in this. Sometimes we forget, don't we? We forget, you forget. Matter of fact, I was reading a story on the Internet that helped me to have some comfort about a man in Italy. It's a true story. A Macedonian man left his wife at an Italian service station and only realized it after he'd driven off without her six hours later. Yeah, that's bad. The couple were traveling with their four-year-old daughter. They pulled her over to for petrol, which is what you say when you live in Europe, in the coastal city of Pissarro, and they were heading back to their home in Germany. After filling the tank, the husband drove away without noticing that his 30-year-old wife had gone out and used the restroom. She didn't have any money or documents, and she eventually had to contact the police. And eventually they tracked her husband some 210 miles away from the gas station. Husband told the police that he had not missed his wife (laughs) because she always sat in the back seat of the car. That guy's in a heap of trouble. He forgot. A couple of weeks ago, I was at the gym, and I've used the same combination lock for the last couple of years. Usually, you know, you just use those kind of things with just by memory, you know. After working out, I went, and I could not remember that second number in my combination lock. 
And I tried and I tried and I couldn't do it. And finally I had to go up to the uh, 24 hour fitness counter and I said, you know what? I know this is the locker. I know it's the locker, but I don't know what my combination is. I forgot. And um, they came with the bolt cutters, you know, and wanted to see ID and make sure I was who I said I was. And I said, there it is. Yeah, this is what's in my, I'll tell you in advance, that's what's in it. I just can't remember that number. I remember telling Cindy that evening as we were on our way to see a, a movie and I needed to stop at the ATM machine. And I was still trying to trouble by this that I couldn't remember the number. And I, I then got to the ATM machine and then lo and behold, I was getting the wrong pin number for my ATM machine. <laughs> I was getting myself stressed out. And then I said, I've got to do something. I was afraid they'd swallow my card. So I went to the gas station about a half mile up the road and I stuck. I said, I only needed about $2 of gas. I just filled it. I said, I got to figure out this number. This, this is going to bother me too much. And I popped it in and Sure enough, I remembered, and everything was well. Now, so that that doesn't ever happen again, I went and bought another combination lock for the gym, and I've now got it on the inside of my watch. (laughs) I'm not giving you the combination number, but I've got it down. Just exactly. Cindy said on the way to the movie, she said, you know what, I'm driving home after the movie. And started quizzing me on my social security number and phone numbers. <laughs> I blew the girl's birthday, sadly, on the years. I always get a, the years. I have to think a couple of times about all their birthday years. But I got the day and month. And then she said, you know, I'm going to drive home. And I thought, you know, I wonder if she'll remember. So in the movie, after it's over, we're driving back and getting back, walking back to the car. And I'm thinking, I really want to drive. I wonder if she'll remember. And then sure enough, she forgot. <laughs> and I drove home. We often wish that time would make God forget our sin. But God doesn't forget our sin just by time. He's not like us as we get older. There's only one thing that makes God choose to forgive and to forget our sin. And that's the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ, where that blood was shed for us. And so when God looks at us, it's not that he has amnesia by any means, He chooses to forget and to forgive us. And he says, your sin I will remember no more. This is an amazing thing. You maybe know people that are like this where they just remember everything you've done. And they want to sometimes bring it back up to you. They've been unwilling to forgive. God says, I'm willing to forgive you. And I can, without compromising my holiness, and I can show you my amazing love through the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did. So the next time, brothers and sisters, you get the opportunity, and sadly you will, to disobey God. Remember his presence. Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The answer is you can't. May that be an incentive that God doesn't forget. And may God help us to not forget that he sees our very lives. May be an incentive for holiness. May be a comfort to us that he's always with us, that he never leaves us or he never forsakes us. Something else the Israelites did, a second thing, they not only forgot, but they compromised. Chapter 7, again, look at verses 8 and 9. Again, referring to the Israelites, he says, Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake, not turned. Strangers devour his strength. Yet he does not know it. Gray hairs also are sprinkled on him. Yet he does not know it. They intermarried. 
They were with people they should never have been with in intimate relationships. And the problem is, is they picked up their evil conduct. You show me very many people who are children of God, who can spend a huge amount of time, more time than with people of God. You show me if they're in a healthy, spiritual walk with God. It doesn't work. Sadly, it seems like it's pretty natural that we're going to pick up some of their attitudes, some of their actions, the more time we spend. Don't get me wrong. We're not to be in a situation where we're living in some kind of a isolated state and we're not having any contact with the lost. Of course not. We need to be with unbelievers. We need to be sharing our Lord Jesus Christ. But we need to be very careful as to if we're spending time in such a way that we're getting dragged down. We're getting pulled down rather than actually lifting somebody up. The Israelites mixed. They compromised in their relationship with God. And you ask the question, who influenced who? Did the Israelites influence the enemies of God so that they turned to Jehovah? That was really not the case. They were duped. And he says here, they got to the point where they didn't even realize that their spiritual vitality was being drained. You know, that's the amazing thing. I believe it's about, I may be wrong on this, but I believe it's about with frogs that the way that they are killed is you put them in water. And you don't just simply turn the water up to boil and then just boom. It's a slow, slow heating to where they finally don't even realize it that they've been cooked to death. But it was a slow case. It's over time. A slow thaw, if you want to use another analogy. They were duped. And that spiritual vitality was being sucked out of them as they were compromising. It can happen, doesn't it? You know, it's not like something that you would say, wow, that happened just, it just happened yesterday. It just happened yesterday. No, chances are, if you're in that situation, it might have been happening months ago. And you start to see where there was a decline. You look in the newspaper, for example, or if you go to the store and you have to, obviously, to shop and you see these magazine covers. I don't recommend opening them up. Sometimes you can't miss the cover. I saw one a couple weeks ago that said, cheaters. And it had uh, the stories, I guess, of famous Hollywood men who have cheated on their wives. And the way the article, I could tell, was written on the headline was, is that this was not a complimentary thing. This was not something to be proud of, that these men were cheaters on their spouses. And yet I wondered about the very people who maybe wrote those articles, the very people who took the pictures of those people. And I wonder, have they ever cheated? That's what sin sometimes does. It deceives. You see it in somebody else. You see the fault in somebody else, but you don't see that it's even maybe starting within yourself. They were deceived. Remember Samson? Remember the story of Samson? He placed himself in situations with that woman named Delilah. And he hung around and he was with the wrong people and he was with her and she had no business being with her because she was not an Israelite. He was a Nazarite. And it says in the scriptures, it says that he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Didn't know it. The deceitfulness of sin. The subtlety of it all. He didn't realize that his spiritual vitality was being zapped right from him. I mean, you know the story if you're familiar with it. 
We need to be very careful. We need to think of the situations. You know, where is the devil? Where's my flesh? Where's the world wanting me to compromise in my relationship with God? And you think about it in a situation, and if you're married or you have parents who you've seen it's a good marriage, you think of friendships that mean a lot to you and you want to be committed to those relationships, and you think, you know, what are the very things that can come in between that relationship that I'm not going to let happen? Think about it in your walk with God. What are the very things where you have to say, you know what, God, before you, I'm drawing a line right in the sand, and I'm not going to let these things over here cross over and affect my walk with you. So often the line, if this is the line right here, we're too tempted to want to go right here. Right here. And God is saying, be back here. Don't get near there. If your relationship with God means as much as it should, and it is the most brilliant relationship you can ever have in this world, is to know the living God. Know sins forgiven. Know the joy of eternal life. Know the fact that Jesus Christ paid his very life for this relationship to even exist. Then out of gratitude out of the fear of God, out of respect for Him, out of love for Him, we ought to be very guarded in protecting that relationship. And our danger is, like the Israelites, we're runaway brides. Sometimes we're looking after other loves, and it makes absolutely no sense. Thirdly, another problem with the Israelites. Sadly, there were a lot of problems with the Israelites. God has recorded this in His Word for us to learn from. Another problem was is they were self-absorbed. I actually probably cared about three people, me, myself, and I. Look at verse 10, chapter 7. Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have neither turned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him. Pride keeps a person from turning to God, doesn't it? It's kind of like... Somebody has said, pride intensifies all our other sins because we cannot repent of any of them without first giving up our pride. If you remember, and actually they made reference to him in verse 1 of chapter 1, Uzziah. I think I spoke about him maybe several years ago. you got a good memory if you remember that message. But he was a young king. And his list of accomplishments in Chronicles are just fantastic. This guy was a young guy. He was a teenager. He was seeking the Lord, it says. And the, the whole first half of the chapter outlines all his accomplishments. And then there's this hinge verse that says that God was with him. He was prospering him until that he realized his own strength. And he became proud. And the rest of the chapter goes on about this King Uzziah, that God, who had, God had been blessing that then this king goes in and he goes in to offer up incense. He goes in to offer up sacrifices inside the temple. And the priest said, you have no business being here, Uzziah. Get out! And the guy's so filled with pride, he, instead of reacting to the rebuke and saying, you're right, you're right, and being humbled, he gets defiant. And these, the Bible says that these seven mighty men confronted him on it. He didn't repent, and God struck him right there with leprosy, and he died a leper. Here was a man at first humbled, humbled in trusting God for his accomplishments, became proud in his achievements, and then he was struck with leprosy. Someone has said pride is like a degenerative eye disease that gradually blinds you. There should be no place, absolutely no place in our relationship with God where we become self-absorbed, And we become proudful. 
Sometimes what happens in our lives is, and we hear this, and this is the, this is kind of the frequency the world is on. If you tune into it, that it's all about me. It's what I want. It's what will make me happy. It's self-gratification at all costs. No matter maybe sometimes who's hurt in the process. You and I need to remember this, and the Israelites forgot this, that when they sin, it has consequences. When we disobey God, it goes beyond just affecting you and affecting me. Other people are affected. Other people are hurt. A spouse, a child, a friend, your church, the people of God. We're all affected in some way when we disobey God. You say, well, I don't really see how that's relevant. I don't think that's the case. Oh, yes, it is. You're going after other loves. If we're falling into sin, we're not in a dynamic walk with God. Chances are we're not talking about him with others. God, the devil's got us filled with guilt. Thinking, you know what, you're so ineffective. Just stay silent. Better not talk to anybody. Your passion for the Lord isn't probably overflowing from within. So you're probably a silent witness. Kind of one of these numbers that we dial, you know, where we don't want anybody to know who we are. But we want to give some information up. Chances are we're probably, when we're falling after other loves, chasing after other idols, modern day idols today, we're probably not in a situation where we're real encouraged to want to pray for one another. Probably not really in a situation where our mindset is to want to know how to encourage each other. We're just kind of self-absorbed. It's a big problem in the world. We've got to stop and we've got to consider the consequences for when we go away from the bridegroom. It has effects. And lastly, not only had they forgotten, not only had they compromised, not only had they shown that they were just self-absorbed and only thinking about what would make them happy and what they wanted at the moment, they left, and I've been referred to this, they left for other loves. You look at chapter 7, verse 11. This is how Hosea the prophet describes going after other loves. He says, so Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. They called Egypt. They go to Assyria. The very nations that were going to Egypt, Assyria was going to attack them in judgment. They're going after these nations. It doesn't make any sense. When they go, I will spread my net over them. Verse 12, I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. I will chastise them in accordance with the proclamation to their assembly. Woe to them. Verse 13, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. And they do not cry to me from their heart. When they wail on their beds, for the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves. Yet they turn away from me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They turn, but not upward. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes will fall to the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt. Perhaps the greatest pain that another human being can experience on this earth is to love someone deeply, to commit themselves wholeheartedly to another person, only to have that person chase after somebody else and go after another 
person or another thing. It crushes and devastates a heart when that happens. I think of situations at my job where I've seen people behave in ways totally irresponsible and wrong, but in a thing where they thought it was a love relationship. They've done some violent things. Sometimes they've even taken the life of that person that they loved and then they kill themselves because they've experienced, at least in their mind, the devastation of somebody that they loved turning away from them. And people sometimes behave wrongly and wickedly in that. It crushes people. So much of the domestic violence that we deal with, it's one of the most dangerous calls for us to send a police officer to because of all the emotion that's tied up in relationships and when they're going sour, when they're going wrong. God, in his righteous jealousy, he feels the pain when we chase after someone or something else. We know the story from the spring that we heard all about. The media was just love the story of the runaway bride. People who had too much time in their hands were spending a lot of time talking about it. Everybody had an opinion. Why would this woman in Georgia leave her fiancé? There's a story that the media just sucked in. If you know anything about that story, and you'd have to kind of have been like this, la, 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 for that time, or not read anything in the print, you might have been impressed by the fact you thought, you know, this guy is kind of special because she's left him, but he wants to take her back. And he says, you know what, whenever it's the right time, I even want to marry her again. I want to marry her. A lot of people would have said, whoa. This relationship is over. I don't know anything about the fella other than some of the things I've heard. Some of what he has said sounds like something God would say as far as being forgiving, being committed to the relationship. I don't know if that's going to hold out or not. There's a verse in a hymn we sing, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And this is the dilemma. There's this tendency that we want to wander away. We want to get away from God. We know this is where the safety and security is. This is where it's the right place to be, and right with Him. Right in His presence. And there's something about us that just wants to move away. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. God wants our heart he wants all of us. And it's, it's right for him to. It's right for him to. He purchased us. He bought us. Scripture says we've been bought with the price. We're no longer our own. He says here in the verses of Scripture, in our, in just before we're closing, he calls him a silly dove. He says you're without sense. You've strayed. You've rebelled. You've spoken lies. You've turned away. You've devised evil. Earlier in the passage of Scripture, we saw that a mixture of idolatry and worship. Remember the reference? He said, you're Jehovah, you know, of worship of Jehovah and idolatry. He said it's likened as a cake that's not turned. You think about it today. You go home and bake a cake, ladies or men. I like to bake cakes too. You know, let's say you put in a cake and it's just half cooked. You'd say, Ugh. now I like to eat the batter before it even goes in the oven. But the analogy here is, is what good is a half baked cake? One half is burnt. The other half isn't. Anybody who'd get that kind of cake probably say, yuck. To try and mix worship of Jehovah with modern day idols, 
is of no use to God. It doesn't make any sense. It's not fit for use. And that's what he says here in this chapter toward the end. He says, you know, Israel, you're like a deceitful bow. Or another translation says it's like a faulty bow. And if you were to use a bow and an arrow and you go like this and you want to use it for attacking game for your food and the bow is faulty, it can't be relied on. It's not dependent. And when you shoot the bow like this, for some reason, the arrow goes like this and misses the target. That would be of no use in enemy warfare if that's your weapon. And that's how you're going to defeat the enemy. And you've got a bow that's shooting up when you're shooting straight. You'd say, you know what? You can have this thing. Put it on a garage sale for a nickel and see if somebody will take it. It's of no use to you. In police work, we have officers that have guns, long-arm rifles and assault weapons that we have to use sometimes. Imagine you're trying to shoot somebody that's a threat to you, to your safety, and you pull the trigger and the bullet just doesn't work. Gun doesn't fire. In chapter 10, if you look over to verse 12... Chapter 10, verse 12, Hosea says, Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. But you've plowed wickedness and you've reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way, in your numerous warriors. Analogy here of what he's saying in chapter 10 is he sees a plowed field. The earth is ready. It's no longer stony and hard. It's ready for God to work in. God wants us to break up the unplowed ground in our hearts. Acknowledge our sins so that he can be used in our lives. He also wants to say that life and what he's wanting to tell us here is life without God is as unreliable as a faulty bow. You and I make ourselves totally vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. And if you think today that the attacks of the enemy don't come, well, then you're deluded. And I'm deluded. The attacks of the enemy are coming every day. And you need to have a bow that's and weapons that you can trust in. When I think of all the heartache in lives, when I think of all the heartache that goes on, you can trace it back that people are searching for something else other than God. And it brings that kind of sadness. Gomer went after other loves. So can we. God wants us to look to him. In conclusion, I'm thinking uh, next April, Lord willing, Cindy and I are going to, as I said, for our 25th anniversary, are going to go to Hawaii. It'll be our first time we've been to that state. Imagine if someone totally generous Purchased our airfare. We actually have a couple at our church that said, you can stay with us for part of the 10 days you're there. And then in a hotel, the other part. Imagine if we planned this, all the anticipation of the water, the sun, the food, just the relaxation of being together, bike rides in awesome places. Trips planned in April, but imagine a week before. I said to Cindy, you know what? I got another plan, honey. I don't think we should go to Hawaii after all for our 25th. I think instead, for those 10 days, we should stay in Castro Valley. And you know what? 
We can shop along the boulevard in Castro Valley. We can see shops that we haven't seen before. There's some fantastic fast food restaurants that we, I'm sure, can enjoy. They've got three Starbucks on the boulevard, so we're going to have our Starbucks. We've got some friends even that live in Castro Valley. I'm sure maybe we can stay at one of their houses for a night. And you know what? We'll save a lot of money. She'd say, you know what? There was more wrong with you back when you couldn't remember that combination lock than you realized. <laughs> that was the start of something. She'd say, you're crazy? Exchanging this for that? Exchanging the chance to be in Hawaii, Lord willing, for this? You think about it in the spiritual analogy. Why would we be willing to exchange all that God offers, all the safety and security and enjoyment and pleasure of knowing God and all that he gives here for the idols, for the loves, for all the other stuff over here that doesn't even compare to the safety and security of knowing and enjoying God. He wants us to be a faithful bride to him. When you go after other loves and lovers, they will utterly, inevitably fail us. There is no joy. There's only heartache. God says, stay with me. I love you with an everlasting love. I want to give you all that I've given you. And all that I want to give you is for eternity. Please. He pleads. Please return to me. Don't leave. That's the challenge for us today. I remember when Cindy and I were getting married and we were at the altar. The elder who was marrying us said, Cindy, will you have this man? And she said, I will. They asked me, would I have her? And I said, I will. The moment that we put those rings on our fingers and we said, I do to one another, a new relationship was established. When you think about it in the spiritual sense, when the question is asked, Savior, will you have this sinner? He always says, I will. The question is, is when he's, the question is asked to us, sinner, will you have this Savior? The moment you and I say that and really, really mean it, a new relationship is established. When I said I will, I promised to forsake all others when I was married in 1981. When I said I will to Jesus back in 1977, I had to be willing to put Jesus Christ first. And forsake all others for him. Amen. The same applies to you. Brothers and sisters, remember the cost. Remember the price that was paid so that we will, by his grace, be faithful in this relationship. Let's reaffirm our commitment in being God's bride. Faithful in our love and true to our vows. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are in a in unique relationship. I want to tell you today, Lord, that we love you, that we thank you for your son who made it possible for us to know you, to know the living God, the almighty God. Father, I pray that you will help our hearts to be pure, our, help, our hearts not to want to wander away, 
We relate to the hymn writer, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. God, forgive us when we do. Forgive us when we stray and bring us back to you. Lord, may we uh, have eyes that are open and ears that are attentive to see and to hear all of the strategies and tactics of the enemy to want to take us away. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that has not entered into that relationship, that, Lord, they'd be willing today to say, I do to you, Lord Jesus, that I want to commit myself wholeheartedly to you and I trust you for my salvation because of Calvary's cross. Bless us with your presence, we ask today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.